A special edition of EU Confidential is coming to you from the World Economic Forum in Davos this week, and it gets started right after this short message. Today's episode is presented by Cisco, the worldwide leader in technology and power behind our internet for the last 35 years. Leveraging technology for good, their people are united behind one purpose, to power an inclusive future for all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It's a great pleasure to welcome Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. There should be Russian oil embargoes. All the Russian banks should be blocked. No exceptions. Welcome to a special edition of Davos Confidential, our daily podcast coming to you this week from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The WEF, as it's called here. It's one of the most elite global gatherings, back after an in-person hiatus, and happening at a crucial moment in global politics. As emphasized in today's opening remarks by Klaus Schwab, the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. We convene in Davos at the most consequential geopolitical and geoeconomic moment in the past decades. The question, of course, is if this cast of business titans and political leaders will rise to the moment and deliver solutions. I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent and the new author of Politico's EU Influence newsletter. And I'll be hosting these daily special episodes today through Thursday. At the top of the podcast was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a keynote address to a packed house earlier on Monday. He urged the global community gathered here to impose further sanctions on Russia, including a ban on Russian oil. Was that a veiled reference to the EU's ongoing failure to agree on a sixth package of sanctions that would nix Russian oil? Our team of Politico reporters here in Davos will get into that in just a moment. And we'll take you behind the scenes to give you a flavor of what it's like to cover a conference like this, what people are really talking about in the corridors and cafes, and at the other events surrounding the official conference. Also in this Davos Confidential series, you'll hear directly from high-powered business leaders, politicians, consultants, and civil society actors. Today, that includes Richard Edelman, CEO of the global communications firm Edelman, on how much we trust, or don't, governments, business, and the media, and why. We'll also hear from Gabriella Boucher, the executive director of Oxfam International, about an eye-watering study on the growth of billionaires during the pandemic. Just wait until you hear that one. Also, our editor-in-chief, Jamil Andralini, speaks to Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, Mikhailo Fedorov, about how technology is being used in Ukraine's fight to defend itself against Russia. And Julien Beaupré, the business leader and former advisor to former French President Nicolas Sarkozy. 
But first, let's bring in our Politico crew here in Davos. Starting with Politico Europe's editor-in-chief and former global young leader of the WEF, Jamil Anderlini. There's also Ryan Heath, senior editor and author of Politico's Global Insider Newsletter, and Suzanne Lynch, author of our Davos Playbook, as well as our Brussels Playbook. I have one burning question as a newbie at Davos. WTF is the WEF. <laughs> Jamil Enderlini, oh our editor-in-chief, my boss. You're the best person to give us the official explanation of what the World Economic Forum okay. is. Okay, it is committed to improving the state of the world. That's the official tagline. And obviously, at this event, there are some contradictions. And there are some... There is a dash of sanctimony and a little bit of hypocrisy because many of the people come here to improve the state of the world by flying in their private jets and then watching Gwen Stefani uh, perform at the piano bar and drinking lots of champagne. So for some people, that is their definition of improving the state of the world. Um, But actually at the heart of this thing, uh, which also makes lots of money for some people and is also an amazing way for CEOs to network with as many people as they possibly could, which they could never managed to network with as many people in such a short period. At the heart, though, there is this sort of intention to try to sort of get together some of the top people in the world, most powerful people in the world, get them all in one space and try to kind of nudge them to improve, you know, and and to tackle some of the world's biggest problems. So you do get some really, really fascinating people. You get Nobel Prize winners, you get scientists, and you get a lot of NGOs. A lot of NGOs come uh, and, you know, charity organizations that try to come and sort of lobby the powerful, uh, the Bill Gateses and the presidents and prime ministers and all the rest. So it's a very weird thing, as you've already worked out in the last uh, 24 hours. It's extremely strange. Uh, you're walking down the street and you like say hi to people and then you realize you've only ever seen them on television. And they're like, who the f*** are you? It's, excuse my language. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's like, uh, it literally happened to me like three or four times today. And then there are people who go, hey, and then you're like, who the f*** is that? And I don't know who you that, are. That, that is the real meaning of WT. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that, was, that was Ryan Heath, who you just heard talking, who's our most important alumni, really, of many WEFs. Correct, Ryan? This is my ninth time at the Ooh. rodeo. Oh, he deserves a medal. <laughs> deserves a medal. And that clapping there and wooing, that was Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, what have you been up to today? Well, look, I have been people watching in a big way. I plonked myself in the middle of the coffee shop in the Congress Hall and I sat there drinking coffee and looking around and trying to nap people. And it's fascinating because you've got this kind of confluence of of events and people and there's a, a hierarchy here. You know, it's it's epitomized by the badges, what colour badge you have. As I look around here and Jamil has the white badge, which is saying everything about his status. The rest of us have the lowly orange badges. But it feels strange to use the word democratic about something like the WEF event. But in a way, it's the closest we sometimes get as journalists to these people in power. So you're sitting there and you're like, oh, there's Christine Lagarde walking by and there's John Kerry. And it's this kind of really unusual and really fruitful opportunity for us as media representatives to get close to those people in a slightly more uh, casual environment uh, than we're used to when we're covering them at press conferences, etc. So it's great to be here as a journalist. Ryan, what have you picked up on along the promenade today? That's interesting. It's a more relaxed environment because it's happening in summer. In winter, you have a lot of stress because there are layers of clothes. There is more traffic because people don't like being out in the cold. 
in past years, we have had more leaders, which means more security detail and entourages. So everything is just kind of more jam-packed and tense in a January World Economic Forum. Yesterday, it felt more like happy hour in Brussels out on the terrace. And that is more my style. So I enjoyed that. I was not ready to see some of our top leadership in Lycra running along the promenade. Uh, We saw a bunch of other executives doing the same. I think they're better off at their breakfast meetings. That's my hot tip. What is different this year is this deluge of cryptocurrency people. So you have this new layer of hangers-on who aren't actually engaged at all with what's going on in the Congress Center. They're just off having parties. And at least the hangers-on used to pretend they were here because of what was happening at the official program. So it's kind of like parallel wefts in a way is what I noticed on the program. I mean, speaker of, speaking of hangers-on, I mean, the big hangers-on here for years were, were Russian mm-hmm. oligarchs. I mean, that's one of the other big changes this year. It's Ukraine is dominating, and, you know, the oligarchs that came here and threw those lavish parties, the caviar, vodka, fueled parties, they're over. They're a thing of the past. So, I mean, that's definitely a change we can see now from where we were a few years ago at this event. And Ryan, actually, a bit ago mentioned that there aren't so many leaders here. And in fact, the big leader who made news on Monday when we're talking was not is also not physically here. And I think, Suzanne, you you went to check out that speech, right? Yeah, I got into the conference hall. I mean, it was all a bit chaotic, everybody trying to get in there. But in in one way, I mean, Zelensky, we know the pattern now. You know, he speaks to these powerful groups of people, usually parliaments, and he's he's very good at honing his message to his audience. So you could hear him directly appealing to the business the CEO figures, you know, asking them to basically write, get out their checkbooks in terms of reconstruction for Ukraine. Um, he was talking also about the need for more sanctions and more military help. In particular, sanctions. I mean, the EU still hasn't agreed its sixth package of sanctions, and he, he was basically implying that. But I also thought, look, it's, it's kind of difficult. You're, you're listening to him on screen. He's talking through, and let's face it, it was a pretty bad translation. And yet, you know what? I sat there going, he could, his communication skills you know, could knock these guys out of the park. And I was looking around to these mostly suited CEOs all around me. And, and so it was quite a moment, actually, just this person, you know, beamed into this huge conference hall and just reminded them of what's really matters and, and what's really happening in the world at the moment. Jamil, let me turn it over to you. Do you feel like it's possible to really get at the big issues right now? And, and what are some of the major themes that you're seeing as you as you walk the halls and the streets here? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine is dominating. You have uh, on the promenade, on the main street, you have what used to be Russia House is now Russia War Crimes House. You have Ukraine House just down the road. So these are sort of meeting places that are sponsored, but they're they're sort of indicative of what the themes and what the interest is. Uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, cryptocurrencies are, are kind of every second shop front on the promenade in, in Davos seems to be a crypto. Uh, company sponsoring it. Um, there's a lot of the technology companies. You know, the markets are doing badly. We have record high inflation, highest in 40 years. We have food prices rising. We have slowing economies everywhere. You have lockdowns in China, which are affecting supply chains. And it's really interesting for me. I spent a lot of time in China, and uh, it's interesting for me. There usually is some sort of China delegation, and this year there's almost nobody. And Partly that's because China is, you know, softly supporting Russia and its invasion of Ukraine, but also because the lockdowns mean that people can't physically leave China at the moment. Even senior, senior officials are kind of stuck in the country for now. So I think economically, you have a really important moment and, you know, not much consensus of what to do about these major, major problems. And you have a war in Europe for the first time in, you know, decades as well. Uh, So it feels to me, honestly, like... 
there's a lot of hand-wringing, if you like. Like, here we are talking about this and going to parties to talk about the big problems of the world, but what can a group of CEOs meeting here in the mountains in Switzerland really do about possibly World War Three? you know, major, major economic crisis? It feels a kind of, there's a, there's a sort of feeling of impotence, if you like. Yeah, and we're going to play an interview later um, where we talk about how there are many more billionaires now than there were before the pandemic because people were able, in Oxfam's argument, to sort of make money off of the food crisis, off the need for for new medications. Ryan, as a multi-year veteran, are you getting the sense that people feel chastened, that they feel a little more somber, or are people just so glad to be seeing each other again that... I think one of the strange things about this place is that when you're really rich and powerful, you tend to be more optimistic than other people. So you're not the one that lost a job in the pandemic. You're not the one who can't afford bread this week at the supermarket. So even if people sense the negativity of the world, they're not negative in the way they perform and and interact here. I think it does make a difference when you don't have the big leaders here because at the end of the day, corporates can't solve a lot of these problems on their own. And so it is some kind of abrogation of responsibility if the leaders aren't turning up. But they're not legally obliged to turn up. You know, they're not members of the World Economic Forum. They're just the bait that gets all of the business leaders here. But, you know, it does strike me that we are not coming to any forms of new agreement. Like, I, I don't, I haven't come across anyone who's like, wow, I now think differently about Russia's war. Oh, wow. Okay. Now I'm going to go back and do this to tackle inflation or to make sure people get food in my country. I don't think that discussion is actually happening. People are, in a way, talking across each other or in their own silos here. And that is not what the point of this forum was. Yeah, I mean, the only the one G20 leader that's here, as, as Ryan pointed out before, is uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, who, let's face it, is having his own political issues. He has had a roller coaster. Uh, since his election um, late last year. Um, so that's it. I mean, we've got n- not many senior people from the US administration, um, not many people from the UK, from France. I mean, you name it. The, the, you know, it, it, it's pretty sparse in terms of the world's most developed economies. And that does feel like a bit of a vacuum uh, here. I would argue that sort of retail politicians in Western countries don't see huge uh, advantage of going to party with oligarchs, plutocrats, even if they're not Russian oligarchs anymore. Mm-hmm. Hanging with the plutocrats is probably not a good electoral strategy uh, for any Western leader at the moment. Hence, no Biden, no Boris Johnson, no Macron. I don't know what Olaf Scholz is thinking, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, he's also doing a, a press conference on Thursday evening when everyone, apart from one or two of us, has uh, has already left Davos. So I think, oh, you but know, we were offered a backgrounder on Thursday morning. And I was like, well, I'm also gone then. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so, yeah. Another trend I notice is that people are digging into their polarized places. So you can criticize places like WEF as moderate and centrist, but... Another synonym for that is compromise, and that's one of the things you need to have a productive discussion. And even when uh, six U.S. senators and a senior House of Reps person came on stage for a session today, they spent the first 20 minutes talking about bipartisanship, and that seemed to be exemplified by them getting onto a stage and not killing each other, and then proceeded to have a huge fight over whether a tax cut from 2017 would be unwound that most people in the audience don't know or care about. And so they couldn't even keep to that line of like, oh, we all stick together once we leave America's borders. And that, for me, was just a little symbol of people just digging into their heels too much and not being willing, not being open to learn or compromise. 
Well, as an American hosting this conversation with people from Oceania, from Europe, thanks for having a productive congenial discussion. It's a good thing since we're all sleeping for the most part in the same apartment. And (laughs) um, we'll see you back here again tomorrow. Ryan, Suzanne, Jamil, thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. And Jamil, we're going to ask you to stick around and take us on a little tour of your day in the Congress Center. You've been going around accosting famous people, important people with a recorder and chatting with them. Tell us who you talked to today. Yeah, so um, actually at breakfast, not even in the Congress Center, at the Post Hotel on the Promenade in Davos, I met with a guy called Julian Volpre. He's a very interesting chap. He used to be an advisor to former president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, and he is the founder of Tadeo, a PR and communications and advisory firm for CEOs, particularly in Europe. Uh, very interesting guy, and uh, he, he gave me his views on what Davos means and what he thought we could expect from this edition of Davos. Davos usually, it doesn't bring a lot of new ideas. Davos is not purely about ideas, you know. For sure, there are some people, there are a lot of smart people, and there are people that are, that have ideas, but it's not about that. It's still a major platform of connection for CEO and political leaders, uh, because in three days, they are they're managing to meet a lot of people uh, in a very short period of time. And these meetings are bringing ID more than Davos in itself that bring totally something breakthrough. A lot of Davos veterans think also that Davos is not a good forecaster <laughs> for the future, uh, but it allows, you know, these people, it allows CEOs and political leaders to feel the spirit of the time and how people, how their peer, how the political or the economic sphere, you know, see the future. And so it's not a reliable forecasting, but it's a good understanding of leaders' mindset, which is slightly different, but which helps. And later in the day, I moderated a panel with or a discussion with Mikhailo Fedorov, who's the deputy prime minister of Ukraine, who's actually come to Davos for this event. Uh, he's only 31 years old, very impressive. Uh, just was named a young global leader at the World Economic Forum 2022. Uh, he's also the Minister for Digital Transformation in Ukraine. So fascinating. He's really a techie kind of kind of guy. And he, uh, I was asking him what technologies Ukraine is using that is helping in its fight against the Russian invasion, and he gave us some, gave me some some thoughts on that. You were speaking to him through a translator, right? That's right. We help our armed forces by using satellite technology, satellite imaging, for example, to register the movements of enemy forces, enemy vehicles, and we get this information. And in this way, we help our military. Another example is the use of AI to find the social media accounts of Russian troops killed in action in Ukraine. And then I really wanted to hear from him which Western companies he'd like to name and shame for not pulling out of Russia or not helping Ukraine. or you know. So he gave us some very specific answers on that, which uh, turned into a little headline for Politico, which was interesting. The first company I would 
like to address is SAP, because they still continue to work in Russia and to pay taxes to help finance Russian army. And a lot of banks and banking activities are also based on uh, SAP. And also Cloudflare, this is the company that continues to protect Russian websites, and I don't know uh, from which or from who they are defending them. And just a little editorial note on that. Neither SAP nor Cloudflare responded to a Politico request for comment. Last month, SAP said it would take what it described as further steps towards an orderly exit from Russia and would increase its donations to support Ukrainian refugees. Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince has argued that, quote, withdrawal by internet companies can have the unintended effect of advancing and entrenching the interests of the Russian government to control the internet in Russia, unquote. And so with that, Jamil, thanks very much. We'll catch up with you again tomorrow. Thanks, Sarah. We'll be right back after this short break with Richard Edelman and Oxfam Executive Director Gabriella Boucher. Stay with us. And now a message from Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. An inclusive future isn't possible without a livable planet. Together, we must focus on what makes the most significant impact on the environment, addressing climate change, driving a circular economy, and being responsible stewards of the planet's limited resources. Cisco enables customers to reduce their own environmental footprints using technology and supports innovators to develop solutions that respond to the consequences of a changing climate. Sustainability and climate change are intertwined with many of the biggest challenges facing the world today. It will take all of us to deliver an inclusive and sustainable future. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. On Monday, Ryan and I sat down with Richard Edelman, the CEO of the influential communications firm, to talk about where trust is breaking down in societies and why. You have a new report out that says business is now the most trusted sector in democracies, but governments are the most trusted sector in autocracies. Where do you think this elite gathering stands in being able to restore trust? So I think that um, 
this uh, distinction between democracy and autocracy stems from the situation in democracies where business is seen as 50 points more competent than government. Whereas in autocracies, there's actually very small gaps between business, government, etc. And, and media also is very credible in autocracies. Now it's state-owned, <laughs> um, so there's no difference in what they say. But these performance gaps don't exist in autocracies. The ability of business to take on all of these new jobs that they have been given. So it started out with financial and economic performance, innovation, make jobs, okay. The next phase though, in the last four years really is societal and the responsibilities first on uh, Me Too uh, and then on diversity and inclusion after the murder of George Floyd, then on the pandemic, you know, take care of us and you know, make sure that we're healthy and give us PPE and then, then the sustainability increasingly um, with COP26 in, in Glasgow making commitments and having business lead with their big finance commitment. So this new responsibility of geopolitics reminds me of the uh, juggler in the circus who's got three balls now to juggle and you know how are you prioritizing which one at what time? And is that even going to be possible in a world where there's high inflation, we're probably going to end up in recession in a lot of places. Do you have advice for businesses on what they're going to have to prioritize, even though they're getting this pressure from all sides? So the fascinating thing for me, Ryan, is the unanimity of stakeholders around the getting out of Russia. A thousand companies got out. This is explainable by half of our the people we surveyed who are consumers said, I bought or boycott a brand based on whether the company is in or out. Also, with employees, you know, 25 point bump if you are in, lo- in terms of loyalty, um, also in terms of uh, willingness to recommend a corporation if you got out of Russia. Um, and literally on trust, you saw companies that get out, 31 point bump, companies that stayed in, 38 point drop in trust. So these are all quite clear red flashing lights saying, get out. The harder question comes when you have multiple issue areas that you have to balance. And I would say in a recession environment, you're going to have to prioritize the running of the business. You got to make money. Then you have to say, well, what does that mean on my societal obligation? Well, if I'm supposed to take care of my employees, I better damn well start retraining now, upskilling, also thinking through where am I locating my business? You, you saw in the trust data this new emphasis on nationalism and that CEOs are to emphasize my home market. 60% say this. This is a new factor in a CEO's thinking. Part of me wants to ask you how should governments and democracies regain trust? But another part of me is like, well, maybe they don't deserve trust if they're not not necessarily handling things competently. And so I don't want to necessarily offer them like, PR advice without actually fixing their underlying problems, but I guess if you can just kind of reflect a bit on this fact that that in democracies, people don't trust the leaders that theoretically they actually chose. So this aspect of leadership is a big change in that trust has moved local. It's in my CEO, it's in my colleagues, it's in people close to me because I can control those relationships. You know, 
I'm Jewish, so I grew up with the Moses model, which is, you know, he spoke down from, you know, with the Ten Commandments, and we all looked up and said, oh, yes, that was top down, you know, from the chief executive of any company or from the chief executive of the country. Then trust went horizontal, peer to peer, into, you know, people you met online. And with the issues of social media in the last few years on trust, what's happened is your aperture has narrowed to things that you can control, which is, you know, I can control my work relationship or my friends, or, you know, I can see you in your eyes, whether you're telling me the truth. And so when 60% of people come into any social interaction distrusting the other side, and that's where we are today, there's a reason that trust is local. So therefore, leadership suddenly is I want to see you do something. Don't tell me what you're going to do. I only am going to believe it with action. And then again, goes back to this idea of business being much more competent than government. So if you are asking, how does government get its stuff back together? How do government leaders get any sort of bump? Do things. Tell people what you're going to do. Execute. Show us the results. I wanted to ask you about the gap in trust between lower income groups and higher income groups. And the reason there is that, at least I have this impression, that among the most excluded or poorer groups in society, there's, there's not really trust for anyone anymore. And I think that pushes people to extremes in politics. And then that, that risks being in a very extreme cycle of distrust, where by only operating at the extremes, nothing gets done. Are there ways to close that gap, or are we going to be looking at a very deep gap for a long time? I think the lowest quartile people suffered the most in the pandemic. They were fired the first. They got the sickest the most because they were doing frontline jobs, and they had the highest death rates, and they have been hired back the slowest. And now they're confronted with petrol that's expensive and food that's doubled in price, and rents that are jumping, so their standard of living is decreasing. So they're irritated. They're not focused on the geopolitics of Russia. They look at the supermarket shelf at the uh, jar of mustard. And so I, I think our biggest goal must be to get quality information to all people. What's happened in the winnowing of daily newspapers is a clear uh, reliance on social media instead of so-called mainstream or fact-based um, reporting. And it's really causing the vulnerability of the public to rumor and a walking away from expertise. I remember your lovely man, Mr. Gove, saying, you know, we've had quite enough of experts in the debate about Brexit. Good Lord. But, you know, we've got to regain confidence in experts and get people to take Vaccine, for instance, as opposed to having, you know, ridiculous theories uh, populate their minds. And beyond, urgent that we make sure that people are fed. <laughs> this is like the basic job of government. And if, in fact, they can't afford that, that there be concessionary means of, of getting food. But companies have to figure out this inflation problem or they're going to be blamed. I see it as clear as day. These things are in cycles, <laughs> and we're back to uh, a cycle of high business trust, which could be low business trust within a year if 
inflation isn't seen as something that business is managing as opposed to just passing along the responsibility. How, how are you enjoying the new springtime Davos? Have you gotten outside at all? Yeah, I walked around uh, a lot yesterday and I must say it was quite a shock not having to have long johns and hiking boots. and. I keep um, running into people jogging down the promenade, including our editor-in-chief. And I was like, <laughs> what the hell, TMI? I understand. No, I mean, I had all good wishes to do a, a good hike up a mountain yesterday, but I don't know. I, I walked around and looked at the uh, anti-Russia house over here and, oh, had, yeah. a, and had a good laugh. <laughs> Where Deripaska used to party with Russian giraffes. Russian giraffes. Yeah, <laughs> very tall were. girls. All right. Uh, yeah. Got it. <laughs> Any tips for, this is my first Davos, what's your, what's your advice for me? The sessions at the Congress Center are just the first layer. Go and have the unexpected. I went to a dinner, this is 20 years ago, a little more, in which the then Prime Minister of Malaysia accused speculators of going against his country and, and ruining you know the global financial markets. And I walked out of there and thought, Okay, now I've seen real, you know, cinema verite or something, <laughs> and the sort of conversations at the Hotel Europe Bar and whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fred Kemp, who I, you maybe know, I met him at the Hotel Europe Bar, and he's one of my best friends now. He Fred runs run, the Atlantic. He Council. runs the Atlantic Council and used to run Wall Street Journal Europe. And so the happenstance part, and then in a sense, come back because the people you meet the first year will become your friends for the next fifteen or twenty. Now let's turn to Oxfam's Gabriella Boucher. To set the tone at the conference today, the anti-poverty NGO released an analysis that found a new billionaire was minted every 30 hours during the pandemic. Really, um, we're running out of adjectives and words to talk about what is happening and the extreme inequality in the world. And I think it's something that none of us has seen in our lifetime how the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And in the report, we show every 30 hours during the pandemic, a new billionaire was minted. Now in 2022, with World Bank figures, we see that 1 million people uh, will be, unfortunately, falling into extreme poverty every 33 hours. So it's a very similar time span in which such extreme opposites are happening. And... Is it sort of a situation of of the rich taking from the poor? Is it a zero-sum thing? Or is there sort of a systemic problem that is seeing things grow on the margins? So here we show the stark contrast. But of course, it's a systemic issues that are complex. But in general, we can say the system is in a way designed in this way. So this is not a coincidence. It is designed by those who have power, and which is come from wealth. And in most countries... They have a huge influence on governments. So um, what we're talking about is how does the majority question the system in such a way that is beneficial for all? So it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game, but rather the basic principles of humanity where we can say if there's prosperity, we hope it is for everyone. I was a month ago in, in Somalia, Somaliland, uh, seeing firsthand the situation there with um, you know, the hunger crisis, uh, famine, and then you think the extreme situations in which people live with very little, but with huge resourcefulness and also entrepreneurship, even in such hardship. So I think we need to also 
put ourselves in each other's shoes. And I'm, I think billionaires, millionaires can be part of the solution. And we have partnered with a patriotic billionaires, millionaires and millionaires for humanity who are saying tax us. Let's name and, and praise. Who are some of the, so the billionaires? Very vocal is Abigail Disney. So she has been, you know, saying how she wants to encourage others to say, you know, what makes sense is to contribute in that systematic way, apart from, you know, philanthropic giving that happens and which, of course, is, is very appreciated. But how do we ensure that it is actually our collective decision? Once there's tax, then we can all decide on, on how it's spent and in the best way possible, you know, like in things like um, resilient and universal health systems that we all have found are so important during the pandemic. When you talk about profiting from pain, can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? So we have looked at some of the sectors that have grown the most during the pandemic, and the food sector is one where there's 62 new billionaires in that sector. Energy is another pharma. There's, of course, the crisis of inflation everywhere in the world, but those billionaires and companies that are in those sectors are profiting beyond what would be necessary, let's say, to produce those goods. But I mean, food billionaires, like they're feeding the world. Shouldn't, shouldn't we be cheering that this virtuous practice is being rewarded? So there is excessive accumulation and, and that has been seen in, in different areas. The difficulty of distribution has meant that there is enough food to feed the world, but it is concentrated in very few. And in reality, we know smallholder farmers are really across the world, the ones that have are producing the food, but they don't get a lot of the benefits of that. So the food production chains are very complex. And, you know, one of the ways would be to remunerate in such ways that people who are farmers can live from what they do. And, and that's not always the case. So many farmers are, are finding it very difficult. And now with the extreme new situations with difficulty with fertilizer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The cost of fertilizers is also making it more difficult. So there are many compounding factors. So we think there should be, and, and that has been said by the OECD, IMF, others, that um, there should be uh, one-off windfall taxes for those industries that have made those profits during the pandemic. And last question. I enjoy this hypothetical. Let's say I'm a billionaire walking around here at Davos. You also bump into me in the hallway. What do you ask me to do? I would like to understand your, your drivers and listen to you first also. But I think, I hope we would reach the conclusion that you know, you could not spend or enjoy the billions that you have in your lifetime or even several lifetimes. So there is no immediate human need to accumulate that much. So your innovation and your capacity has been rewarded, and that's fine. It's important to, to consider that. But, you know, a great part of it, the great majority, could 
really have an enormous impact on people's lives. And we know that with the you know, resource, for example, 43 billion, which is in fact a small amount for, for many billionaires, would be enough to cover all the food imports across the world for all countries. So you would be able to know that you have contributed to ensuring that everybody has food on their table and nobody's dying of hunger now in the 21st century. So I think that would be something that you could be very proud of. That's interesting. I think Elon Musk is spending, we'll have to cut this out if I'm wrong, but I think he's, he's supposed to spend $44 billion on, on Twitter. So interesting, uh, interesting comparison. Anyway, Gabriella Boucher, thank you so much for being with us today. No, thank you very much. And that's all the time we have on this special edition of Davos Confidential. We'll be back tomorrow with even more special guests and, of course, our impressions from the forum. And if you want even more of our coverage from Davos, we have a daily Davos playbook that goes out first thing in the morning. So be sure to subscribe to that at politico.eu. I'm Sarah Wheaton in Switzerland. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. 